Well, you came to church on a good Sunday because we have a wonderful guest preacher, Mark Laberton. I have known Mark for about 30 years. We met when we were both three years old, and we've known each other ever since. Uh, and a couple of months ago, we ha- you're not buying that, are you? A, a, a couple of months ago, we had the former president of Fuller Seminary here to preach, Dr. Richard Mao. And today we have Dr. Mark Laberton, who's the current president of Fuller Theological Seminary. And Mark is going to introduce a topic we're actually going to talk about later in the year. And over the years I've known Mark, he has always challenged me, encouraged me, and helped me grow deeper by his understanding of God's Word. And so it's just great to have him here this morning. Would you please welcome Dr. Mark Laberton. Thanks, Scott. It's really great to be here. This church, though I've never been here before, is a church that's actually had a big influence on my life because of the people that have been part of this congregation who over many, many years have influenced me. So it feels to me like you have influenced me, and I thank you for that. I'm thrilled that Scott is here as your pastor. I remember many years ago when he was called to this position, how excited I was that that had actually happened. What a wonderful fit that seemed to me to be, and it certainly seems to be one that God is honoring in a marvelous way. I want us to think this morning about the question of where we think we live. It begins with a story. One day in my office in Berkeley, when I was the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley, there was a man standing in the doorway, uh, introducing himself quickly, saying that he was wealthy and powerful and successful and very busy and really didn't have time for this conversation, but could we just have a five-minute chat? I said, wow, that's quite a self-introduction. By all means, sir, what's up? He said, well, my wife has been coming to this church. She is talking about Jesus at dinner. I don't really know anything about Jesus, so I just thought I could stop by for some quick bullet points about Jesus. I said, wow, I understand the problem. I can understand that that could be sort of awkward. He said, yeah, I just need some kind of hooks because I just don't get it. So I have my note card here. Could you just quickly give me some fast bullet points about Jesus? I said, you know, you've really come to the wrong guy. Honestly, I'm not very good with bullet points. And then secondly, if I gave you the bullet points and if you understood the bullet points, they would have a way of working their way into your life and you'd have to rethink your power and your money and your use of time and your relationship with your wife and your children. And all of that would have to be completely disordered by the fact that we've had this conversation about Jesus. And I don't really think you're up for that. Oh, I'm totally not up for that, he said. Exactly, I said. So why don't we just brainstorm some other things you could talk about to dinner? How do you move from Jesus to some other subject that you would feel more comfortable talking about? I began to give him a few hints. He said, no, no, I'm not kidding. I said, I'm not kidding either. I'm I'm just not sure that I want to be responsible for completely reordering your life when clearly you don't want to reorder your life. And then he paused. He said, what if I came back for an hour? I said, well, an hour is just like a sort of a fat bullet point, really. He said, what if I came back for two hours? I said, no, really, I'm not playing a game. He said, neither am I. And then he sort of leaned in. He goes, what if I came back for a whole morning? And then he said, I don't give anybody a whole morning. (laughs) What he was getting at was wanting something that he couldn't get his hands on in the way that he had his job and his money and his success, his family, his time, his use of so much that was at hand. The issue is that what Jesus does is what God in the whole of the scripture does. We worship a God of disruption, a God who disrupts the ordinary circumstances. Now, it's been true in Israel's life, as it's true in the church's life, that a great deal of our whole existence seems to be to domesticate God, to try to get God under our control, just in the same way that this man really, I think, essentially wanted to get God or Jesus or whatever it was that he thought his wife was hearing about under his control. And the church, the people of God, have often 
been attempted, attempting to do exactly the same thing. To figure out some way of trying to get it all under our control. But the God of the Bible will not be controlled. And that God is a disruptor. We see it in the New Testament, especially in the ministry and life, death and resurrection of Jesus. But we see it as well in the Old Testament. And the text that we're looking at this morning in the book of Daniel comes in the heart of the second of two great paradigms of the Old Testament. The first great paradigm of the Old Testament is a paradigm of disruption, and it involves what happened to Israel when they were under the oppression of Egyptian rule. It's the paradigm that we call the Exodus. It's clear that they're oppressed by Egypt. They want to be free. They want to be set free and move to what God had promised, which was the, the promised land. The paradigm is straightforward. Egypt are the bad guys. Israel is the good guys. And the goal is simply to get from Egypt to the promised land as quickly as possible. Now, it turns out that that's much more disruptive to Egypt than they would have ever imagined. And it's even more disruptive to Israel. Because, in fact, they come close to the River Jordan. And then 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years of disruption to get ready to go into the promised land. But the paradigm is fairly straightforward. It's interesting that on this particular weekend, the 4th of July weekend, we can pause for just a moment to think about how significantly we are shaped as a nation, as an exodus nation. By no means is everyone on American soil here because of their freedom of choice. Not everyone that lives in our context is here because they necessarily even want to be here. But they have found themselves here, and they've found their, their heirs to be here before them. But for many, this country has a legacy of being part of an exodus culture, where people have come from someplace to this place in hopes of finding, of course, a promised land. And a lot of this was wrapped in Christian theological language for many, and for others, it became part of the common, common parlance of the culture that we were a part of. Some people got to New Jersey and thought maybe that was the promised land, and then other people thought, oh, I hope not. I hope all this was not for New Jersey. So they decided to keep moving, and they settled in all kinds of different places all along the way until they get to the West Coast. And your heirs, perhaps, certainly my heirs, come from the Northwest, and a lot of this area it was founded by people who were seeking that taste that piece of the promised land that was actually going to be their fulfillment now it's interesting that as american cultural life goes on and as secularism grows as the church becomes more and more alike the culture that's around it what happens is that it converges very nicely with something like american consumerism so now i can have a spiritual dream of god giving me a promised land surely god wants me to be happy and satisfied and safe and secure and now i just pray for jesus to give me all that would give me those feelings. It might be a better kitchen, a bigger house, a second house, a third house, a great vacation, a wonderful job, a large salary, nice children, a lovely spouse, all part of that sense of promised land life. And we just want God to give us that promised land. And a lot of consumeristic Christianity is really based on that sort of vision. Now, the second great paradigm of the, of the Old Testament, the one that intersects with the text this morning, is, the, parable, is the, the paradigm of the exile. Eventually, Israel does enter the Promised Land, but the dangers of the Promised Land are actually greater than Israel had ever imagined. And the reality of them making their way into the Promised Land and establishing themselves as a secure nation and, and being God's peculiar people, it's not quite how the story turns out. And a great deal of Israel's suffering in the promised land happens as a consequence not of intrinsic evil, but because of their willingness to simply live lives that look like the culture that's around them. God had warned them of this. That's why they spent 40 years in the wilderness. That's why they needed to try to be ready, spiritually ready, to be able to enter the promised land and give, live as God's peculiar people. But over time, 
Over time, Israel just became a reflection of the nations that were around them. And God sends prophets, prophet after prophet after prophet. You don't look like me, God would say through the prophets. You look like the culture that's around you. You treat people the way that they treat people. You worship the gods that are around you. You give yourselves to things that are of secondary and third and fourth level importance rather than actually staying clear and true to me. So what God does in the paradigm of the exile is that he sends Israel now into Babylonian captivity in order to ask, will you now? under this rule, live as my peculiar people. I'm going to strip you of all the things that tell you that I'm at hand. The temple is desecrated. The law is, it seems, forgotten. The practices of Israel's national life are stripped away. And now, as strangers in a strange land, the question is, so where do you live? And who will you be in this place? Will you just become like so many Babylonians? Or will you live as my peculiar people? people? That's the question that's really at the heart of the book of Daniel. Now, the greatest danger in Daniel is not the fire that we're going to look at or the lion's den that comes later. It's really the felt board. (laughs) By that, I mean it's the way that Daniel often is imprisoned in Sunday school classrooms on a felt board, right? The little one or two dimensional characters that are glued onto the felt board. We need to rescue Daniel from the felt board. So I want us this morning to think about this book not as a one or two dimensional script, but actually as an enactment of a portrait of what it really means to live as God's peculiar people. Here in this text, we begin in chapter 1, where Daniel and his friends are taking captivity. The best and the brightest they are. They're given every option. They live in Nebuchadnezzar's house. They're well-fed. They're treated well. It's all part of a process of assimilation. Take the best and the brightest, conform them to the Babylonian ways, and then allow them to be the influence of assimilation for Israel. It was a great plan except that Daniel and his friends decided one very important thing. We may live in Nebuchadnezzar's house, but every time we eat, we're going to remember who we are, that we belong to Yahweh. And so they got permission to practice the dietary law of Israel. So every time they sat down to eat, yes, they were living in Nebuchadnezzar's house, but they didn't actually belong to Nebuchadnezzar. What do you and I do on any given day that helps us remember who we really are Children made in the image of God, rescued, redeemed, loved, purposed by God for the purposes and people and circumstances that are around us in which we're meant to live as agents of an unseen but profound kingdom. That's really what the first chapter of Daniel is trying to practice and claim. The second chapter is a chapter where Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the day, the great ruler, the tyrannous ruler, the rageaholic, ends up having a terrifying dream. And this time he wants a real interpretation. He wants his dream to be told to him and then the interpretation. He sets a test. Daniel and his friends are able, by God's grace, to meet the test, to tell them the dream and tell them its, uh, its meaning. And the meaning of the dream is, your kingdom is coming down. That's not great news to deliver to a rageaholic person who dominates every part of your life. But they tell this news and interestingly the text says, Nebuchadnezzar was so grateful for the truth. We come to chapter 3, and Nebuchadnezzar builds the nightmare of chapter 2. So the image that had been the terrifying image about the decimation of his kingdom is the icon that's built in chapter 3, where after this 
icon is built, this great statue, the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. The text says, as you heard repetitively, now when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, an entire musical ensemble, you shall worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Therefore, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, and every musical ensemble, you shall worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And so when the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, an entire musical ensemble, they did worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, except, as the text says, except for certain Jews. Now, it's a very interesting little moment because, in fact, the people that rat them out in chapter 3 are the people who were saved by the prayers and faithfulness of Daniel and his friends in chapter 2. That's a little interesting little footnote. Those who were saved are now so threatened that they want to turn them in. So they turn in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as those who are unwilling to bow down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So Nebuchadnezzar is informed of this. In his characteristic rage, he comes toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with neck veins popping. He declares to them that, in fact, he really is the one who has their lives in his hands. And he says, I hear that you understand that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, an entire musical ensemble, that you're supposed to worship the golden statue that I've set up. But I hear that when you've heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, an entire musical ensemble, you have not bowed down and worshiped the golden statue that I've set up. So therefore, if you do not bow down and worship the golden statue that I have set up, I will throw you into a furnace seven times hotter than it's ever been heated. And who, who will even be the God that will deliver you from my hands? He makes Napoleon seem pale. <laughs> it's an amazing sense of personal destiny and power. And then the high point of this chapter occurs which is not really the saving in the fire, which happens later at the end of this chapter. They do go to the fire, and the God provides them for them in the fire. It, the high point is the next verse, where the text basically says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, seeing Nebuchadnezzar with his bulging neck veins before them, threatening to extinguish their life, said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you silly little idolater. We have no need to give you a defense in this matter. Our God may deliver us, our God may not deliver us. But whether our God does or doesn't deliver us, we will not bow down and worship the golden statue that you have set up. The high point of this chapter is that moment because it is the moment of being unhooked. Unhooked from the lesser danger because for them the greater danger was the idolatry. Nebuchadnezzar was absolutely convinced that he had their life in their hands. They agreed, you may have our life in your hands. That's just not the most interesting or important or compelling question. Who has our life? The God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has their life. Not just the, that moment. Not just that moment when the fire may be heating up even now. Instead, what they realize is that the greater danger is the idolatry of bowing down and worshiping anyone or anything but God. See, the trick had been, what is always the trick about any kind of assimilation, and it, especially perhaps in forms of idolatry, we just set in motion mesmerizing rhythms. So when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, and entire musical ensemble, you shall worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And no one needs to even think about it. The cue is given, the band starts up, you fall down, and that's the end of it. 
it's really not a big deal. You could imagine people coming along, oh, really, like, get over yourselves, really, just bow down. It's not that big a deal. Bow down, get up, we'll move on with life. But not for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That mesmerizing rhythm was a captivity, a captivity to idolatry. And it's that idolatry that is at the core of what is at risk in our assimilation to the culture that's around us. What will make us faithful exiles? That we remember that we worship God and God alone. And that we allow that to inform not just our ideas, but our practices. And when they come into direct conflict, as happens in this particular case, it is absolutely clear to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who they belong to and who they don't belong to. When studies are done about the American church, one of the things that's repeated over and over and over again is the sense that this church looks very much like the culture that's around us. It's almost indistinguishable. The assimilation is almost complete. Where then is the evidence that we're living as God's peculiar people? Where's the evidence that we have remembered what's first and what's not first? Where's the evidence that we belong to a God who's called us to a peculiar kind of life? That's what this text is really about. But what we can easily do is simply get so used to the mesmerizing rhythms that we don't understand it. So you take, for example, again, on the 4th of July. On the one hand, the mesmerizing rhythm of this weekend, of course, is the national anthem. It's a great national anthem, and it's a great opportunity to acknowledge and honor our country, to give thanks for our country, to celebrate and remember the heritage of our country in so many positive ways, to be able to acknowledge a positive, healthy patriotism. But that's very close to a very great danger which is actually nationalism, when you begin to worship your country. That was the danger, of course, in Germany. That's the danger in all kinds of contexts where something so positive can become something so wrong just on the cusp of that difference between the greater and the lesser danger. Materialism has a way of capturing us. So the mesmerizing rhythms are the announcement of a sale, the arrival of a new Apple product, the opportunity to be able to consume something at, at little cost, to be able to have under our grasp through our money, our resources, our opportunities, something that, that we just want to consume and take into ourselves. And it just is a mesmerizing rhythm. It's what we all do. We consume. Andy Stanley, a pastor on the East Coast, says that one of the things that he makes as an assumption about every person that ever comes into his church is that before they are anything else, they are a consumer. That's not the voice of a cynic. The voice of a realist who understands the significance of how much our life and our culture is set in motion by acts of consumption. Or you think about race. Race is a pattern of mesmerizing rhythms, our sociology of how we sort ourselves by race, how we sort ourselves by economy. All those kinds of things can be just practices of mesmerizing rhythms. Not long ago, I spoke in a context in which, apparently until the 1960s, this very noble Christian institution had never allowed African Americans to even be present. Now, on the occasion where I spoke, there were only people who were white. That's a mesmerizing rhythm. Since the 60s, it's been okay. But the mesmerizing rhythm is so powerful that in that room and that day, there were only a thousand white people. That's not an accident. That's a function of a mesmerizing rhythm of how we've ordered ourselves. One day I was speaking at a context that was a little unusual for me that had such bright lights on the stage that I literally could see no one that I was talking to. But what I could see were two video monitors. One here that had a large image of me. <laughs> and then over here there was another video monitor that had a large image of me. 
and then of course there was me. I thought this is sort of the postmodern trinity. There's me, and there's me, and there's me. This is the world I've always wanted. This is the world I was created for, where it's all about me all the time, and everybody seems completely wrapped. I mean, we're all involved in me. That's the idolatry of the culture that I live in. That's the idolatry that says, I want life my way. And if I was going to be in a 12-step program, it would need to be in Idolaters Anonymous. Hi, I'm Mark Laberton, and I'm an idolater. Not a gross idolater, not like Nebuchadnezzar. I just have tasteful pottery barn idols, really. <laughs> they, they, they seem so innocuous, no one would even know that they, that they hold me in their grip. And I get to decide what's there and what's not. See, this chapter puts in focus this question of what hooks us. And what's so astonishing here is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are simply unhooked. Unhooked. Are you? This church does so many amazing things. It's a vibrant, healthy, living community of faith. You are serving in this area and beyond around the world, all the mission teams that you're sending. You're doing all kinds of creative things. If you live in the Northwest and you're a Christian, if you're in church on a Sunday morning, that is an exilic life. Like, you're, you got it. But the question is, how do you practice it? Exile might get you here, but does it cause you to live peculiarly there? In your neighborhoods, with your friends, in your workplace, in the places of decision-making, in business, in culture? Where's the evidence that you know that you are living an unhooked life and are not controlled by the mesmerizing rhythms that can take us captive? A number of years ago, I had a significant bicycle accident. I, I'd like to think it was when I was in the Tour de France and I was just coming in with the yellow jersey on the final lap toward the Champs-Élysées, but that wasn't really true. I was just on a flight, flat bike path in Alameda, California with nothing going on. There was no water, no drama, no race, no cars, no water, nothing, just me, and unfortunately, one other bike that I happened to collide with. And that bike, when it went down, had straight handlebars. My face, uh, I went up on my front tire. My face was driven straight into the end of that handlebar, and it pushed my left eye back in my skull an inch and down in my skull an inch. It was quite a dramatic injury, and eventually my sight was restored, which I'm really, really grateful for. But for a long time, I had acute double vision, one image here and another image here which meant that the world was twice as large as it would have been otherwise. It was the fastest form of church growth, for example, that I'd ever <laughs> experienced. Uh, suddenly, my congregation was twice the size that it had been the week before. It was my Picasso period. It was one of those times that was just so strange, and I felt God saying to me over and over again, Mark, I will restore your sight, but there's something much more urgent that you need. You need a new way of perceiving. You need new vision. And astonishingly, that is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. The bulging neck of a ferocious dictator. Who will deliver you from my hands? There was every reason to imagine they would concede. But they didn't. Because they saw beyond Nebuchadnezzar to the reality of the God who alone they would worship. May we be people who do so as well. Lord, may we be faithful exiles. We are called to live as your peculiar people, to demonstrate your peculiar life, to live in the freedom that you alone are God. May we live it out in our life every day to the glory of your great name we pray.